My name is Fred Camper with a C. I was born in Chicago in 1947, graduated in the June of 64. What, if anything, do you remember about your first day or first couple days at Bronx Science? Don't remember the first day with any great, I mean, obviously there was a little bit of, you know, it was a new deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course I could walk to school, to junior high school, and this was a whole epic journey on the subway. <laughs> we moved to New York when I was three, first to Queens, sort of outer end of Queens, Bayside, and then to Manhattan when I was 11 to an apartment that would now be in the many millions and then was rent controlled right opposite the Museum of Natural History. Oh. And so I went to the local junior high school, which was fairly tough. They had uh, SP classes, which stands for special progress. And so the smart, and I hate to say it, mostly white kids got into those. Mm. In fact, I think there was actually some racial discrimination. Mm. Uh, that is not so smart white kids got in and maybe some smart non-white kids didn't. And so I went to science uh, for my sophomore year, uh, and I would have been, I guess, 13. Wow. Because I graduated when I was 16. For some reason, I, I remember from the beginning students' complaints about the lack of a swimming pool. Apparently, when they were planning the building, there was the possibility of a swimming pool. They couldn't afford it, so instead we got a mural. That myth has persisted. Is it true? Well, we'll, well, I'll keep asking people, and eventually we'll find out. Ah, I have no confirmation yeah, either yeah, way yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, that was that was the, <laughs> the the big myth. It was hard work for me. I mean, I, I in terms of spending a lot of time. Mm -hmm. In the sophomore year, I don't have any specific memories. My memories get more specific starting in the second year. There was a course taught by a Doctor Dodes, D O D E S, who we understood had a real PhD in something or other like mm -hmm. math. And it was a course in computer programming. The school had an IBM 1620. It obviously wasn't the most powerful computer of the time. I'm sure it was far less powerful than a PC. Mm. The course, however, was really good. And I say that as someone who has trouble operating a computer today. <laughs> it was really good because it, 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 didn't, it, it wasn't practically oriented. It started with machine language. We had to learn to write a program in machine language. Mm -hmm. I don't think we, we could do very much, you know, maybe add two and two or something. I don't remember what. But it, the input was all on IBM cards. Right. And so we had to learn the numerical commands that represented machine language. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to, to actually understand how it worked insofar as you could. Mm -hmm. And the other thing about that course is you had to do a Westinghouse project. The Westinghouse thing was pretty famous at science. Um, 40 people who got to go to Washington. Wow. There were semifinalists and then 40 went to Washington and then maybe there were 10 who got money, something like that. So for you though, at, at this point, you're around these you know, people doing this kinds of thought and you're engaging with it in these different ways. What was really exciting to you about what you were learning? What was kind of grabbing your interest? Well, there were, it depended on the course. I, I was reminded of a, of a memoir that I read, uh, not even a memoir, just a, a comment by a journalist about going to Harvard in the 80s. And his story was that in his sophomore year, after having taken the freshman courses, he went to see his advisor, who was a history professor. And he had all these ideas. Well, I think I want to take Freudian psychology, all these ideas of subjects he wanted to study. And the professor interrupted him and said, you're going about this completely wrong. What you need to do is find out who the best people are and take whatever it is they happen to be teaching. <laughs> 
And that was certainly true of science. In other words, I had a very good biology teacher and he was kind of inspiring. And I did a project for him on the microbes in sour milk with milk sitting around in the refrigerator. And I'm sure your family loved that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I looked at them under the microscope and I can't remember what I learned. (laughs) And Dr. Doty's was very good for exactly the reasons that I mentioned. So I want to dig a little deeper that idea of practicality that you talked about or lack of practicality that you talked about. What was it about that that stuck with you, that idea of like, let's start at the beginning and understand how it works? Like, has that, was that something that you were finding in other rooms at Bronx Science? Well, in, in the best courses. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it has to do with your particular attitude toward knowledge and the reason for learning. Mine is not to get a job. That's not why I, I want to learn things. And what's become disgusting about education today I don't mind teaching people trades that they can use to get jobs, but the, the degree to which it is cynically only that. Mm. And, and you know, you can get a degree in film from a college that I won't mention without ever knowing who Griffith was. Right. Um, uh, they have lovely rooms, though. I'm really enjoying yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I, if you have me, you'll know who Griffith was. <laughs> um, uh, and I just teach part-time. Yeah, I mean, wanting to understand the root of things. I mean, I didn't have another computer course to compare it with, but in hindsight, it seems like a great idea. And I don't know how much we learned. Just the fact that there was something called machine language. And we did learn something because I remember how easy it was to make a mistake. So we, you know, we learned something about how to do it, but I'm getting to the best class, which had the worst instructor. Uh, It was uh, somehow I lucked into the most advanced math class. In other words, they had a series of classes called Math 10 which were all calculus. Mm-hmm. And I got into the one called Math 10H. And it must have just been scores or something. Huh? Yeah. And Math 10H was taught by someone named Mrs. Mason, who was a kind of mediocre teacher who the best that can be said for her knew enough to step back and let some of her students do something. <laughs> the first day of class, right at the beginning, a big argument erupted between about six students and Mrs. Mason. The students were protesting the textbook we were going to use. Hmm. Over what? They had another textbook that they thought we should use. I mean, when does this ever happen in a college class? Yeah. And I had no idea what any of this was about. I had not learned calculus. I went out and bought the textbook that they recommended. Hmm. They lost the argument. But within a couple of weeks it became apparent that they were 2,000% right. The book we were using was an engineering book written by an MIT professor in How to Solve Problems. The book they wanted to use was a math book with theorems, postulates, yeah. proofs, and it could help. It, you could use it to solve the problems too, but you were learning real math. Right. Those half dozen students are what made the class truly great. Mm. And I can give you two names. Yeah. Uh, Alan Zaslavsky, Z, I think it's Z-A-Z-L-A-V-S-K-Y and Greg Chaitin, C-H-A-I-T-I-N. You can find them both on the internet. So they stepped into kind of leadership roles as teachers in no, the class? No, no. Well, Greg in a way did. They were very different. Alan was uh, was uh, extremely brilliant in math and very quick, mm-hmm. but had already become interested in history and politics. He was one of the people who protested a shelter drill and was allowed to stay in the room. I had no idea what that was about. I just participated in the shelter drill. Um, He would very noisily read the New York Times during math class, (laughs) you know, turning the pages. 
And there would come to be come a problem that no one could solve. And Mrs. Mason would say, Alan. Oh, and Alan would go up to the blackboard and solve it. Oh. It reminded me of a story later that Murray Gilman told about Fein, Richard Feynman. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, Richard Feynman has a different method of solving problems than anyone else here at Caltech. His method is write down the problem, think about the solution, write down the solution. <laughs> But Alan was still full of enthusiasm, just not necessarily for math anymore. Mm. And by the way, Alan, um, I later made contact with maybe 10 years ago. He teaches at Harvard in the School of Public Health using math to, um, you know, analyze health, you know, public policy issues. Before that, he'd actually, right after school, very 60s, he he taught it in Africa for some years. Greg uh, sat next to me. And, and he was in one or two of my other classes. And he would always be carrying a huge pile of books that would often fall. The desks <laughs> were tilted. And when you called, when a teacher called him and he would get up to speak and the books would fall. <laughs> he once oh. showed me one of the books that he was carrying, which was a facsimile. Might not have been a facsimile, but it was an edition of Euclid in the original Greek. And I asked it's him- a little how, light reading. Well, I said, how are you going to read this? And he showed me his other book, Beginning Greek. Oh, my goodness. So I don't know how far he got. Yeah. It wouldn't bother me if he never learned Greek. I mean, the aspiration was there. Yeah, um, and so Mrs. Mason would let him and some other students present their latest research <laughs> on the sideboard, so to speak. Oh, that's great. And they, would, they were full of just adolescent enthusiasm. Another friend I had in science who I connected with years later named Michael Strasser, lives in New York, S-T-R-A-S-S-E-R, remembers that Greg actually presented work on random numbers in our class. Mm. I didn't know that, but that became the field that he's known for. And, and this is what I'm getting to. This is, this is the negative thing I wanted to tell you, not about. Yeah. About 20 years later, a friend of mine who knew that I was proud of having gone to science and knew that I thought I'd gotten a really good education there. I mean, if you take a high school course that allows you to ignore freshman physics at MIT, it must be pretty good. Yeah. Um, showed me an article or gave me an article in Smithsonian Magazine about science. And he didn't think anything of, it, of the article. He thought I would just be interested. And it, you know, typical magazine writer conceit, it focused on the valedictorian that year. And the changes were, were kind of appealing. It was a woman of maybe Chinese or some Asian ancestry. Yeah. Or maybe her parents were new immigrants. And she lived in Queens, so she had an even longer subway commute yeah. than I did. Both of those were recognizable. So far, so good. Or if not recognizable, made sense. Understandable, yeah. Then she said the following. I'm not really that interested in science per se. I plan to go to Yale as an undergraduate and then to Harvard Law School. But having gone to science might be useful. Maybe I'll be president of a chemical company someday. <laughs> so I almost threw up. I think my point would be there were students when I was there, I'm sure, who thought that. And really, there's nothing wrong with wanting a career. And there's nothing wrong with studying science if you're interested in managing a business. I'm not anti-business. But people didn't talk like that. They kept it to themselves. Mm. Uh, they, they let Greg Chaikin present his theories of random numbers. They took a back seat to the people who were enthusiastic about their subjects. So I, I got very interested in what was called then experimental film or avant-garde film. And uh, the, it was very hard to see at that time in New York. They'd closed down the unlicensed venues for the 64 World's Fair. 
guy in Queens was showing them in his house. And so I recruited some friends. I think Alan Zoslowski was one of them to come to these screenings. Probably they didn't like them too much because they didn't <laughs> come again. But when I reconnected with Alan, he remembered fondly my interest in odd artistic areas. And, and I think that the way he remembered that was in the same way that I respected Greg Chaikin or him. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, people should have passions that they're pursuing for the sake of pursuing them because they're interested in the subject. Yeah. And, and that's something that I, I know is going to be true among, I'm sure, some science students today. Absolutely. But the dominant paradigm has shifted somewhat in recent decades. So for you as someone in academic spaces, you said part-time at least, and I know you're around uh, this particular school, but within, within the classroom, how do you try to instill that in students? Well, I do different things. I'm teaching a class at the School of the Art Institute. It's supposed to be a first-year English class called Writing About Art and Film, and it is. I teach how, how to write, and I critique their papers. But you're also allowed to teach the subject of art and film. And so I try to show films that I think are great. I've chosen artists whose work I think is great. And I do something really odd, which is to play five minutes of classical music in almost every class, mm -hmm. in a whole complete pieces, um, and often very old music, like medieval or Renaissance or Bach. And my point there is the density and, and intensity and focus of this music is great training to oppose to the distractions of contemporary consciousness. You really have to listen and focus on it. And from that, I've gotten some students who've really liked it, and one student who's become a friend. Hmm. And the way we became friends is partly the way he responded to the early music that I was playing. So there are still people who are deeply passionate about all kinds of things. What happened at science that helped you learn how to focus? Well, there weren't as many distractions. The physics course was not easy. Uh, I mean, I was learning calculus at the same time. I'd go home with, I think the book was Halliday and Resnick. Mm -hmm. And I'd sit on my bed for a couple of hours trying to figure it out. Um, and I didn't have a computer, obviously. Yeah. And I didn't play the radio, which I could have. Um, uh, so, you know, it's just a question of how you spend your time and how you choose to use your attention. I was also helped by a fifth grade teacher, my other great teacher named Mrs. Seeley, S-E-E-L-E. -E. Um, I probably wouldn't have liked her if I'd met her an adult, as an adult. <laughs> I would suspect she's a Republican. She was a Republican, for instance, you know, and very interested in good posture and staying clean and being dressed well. Mm -hmm. But she was a disciplinarian who believed in teaching. And one of the things she did was force us, require us to memorize a poem every week. Mm. Her taste in poetry was terrible insofar as I remember some of them. And then you had to, it was recitation yes, as well? Yes, yes. But what I learned from that was reading and rereading and rereading a poem causes it to change. That became my model in general. You know, you take the object and you try to study it. The kind of focus required to learn a poem was useful with Halliday and Resnick, useful for calculus, uh, useful for a lot of things, useful for film viewing, for the kind of film viewing I was doing. Yeah, and for the kind of work that I would imagine that you've done post, that's the, it becomes the model. Yes, yes. 